Man, I, I don't know. I, I hope you guys are enjoying our series and the Beatitudes as much as I am. I, I get so much out of my study time and prep time. I love it. I was this week, I was thinking, just the Bible is so awesome. When you think it's as good as it can get, it just gets better. I mean, it's just, uh, I just, it's so good. So, so good. So let's, oh, I'm not even sick. We are in our uh, series called Blessed Revolution in the Beatitudes, uh, the, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and I want to go ahead and jump right in with today's text, and then we will pray. So verses 7 and 8 this morning, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, and blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Father, uh, open our hearts to receive your word this morning, Lord. We do. We, we believe your word is so rich and so full, and we could never, uh, ever gather all there is, but we want to just get as much as we can, Lord. So would you just impart wisdom and strength from your word into our hearts and lives today. In your name we pray, amen. I'm going to, I want to address an issue today. I've been um, thinking about it. Uh, but I decided, chose this morning's message to include this. Uh, and it's an issue that has application throughout the whole series. Um, but again, I'll use today's text as an illustration. And, and here's the thing. It sounds a little bit like, sometimes when you read the Beatitudes, that there's kind of a reward system going on, that if you do this, you get this. If you're merciful, you get mercy. If you're pure in heart, you see God. And there's, there's actually, uh, not so much today, I don't think there's as many contemporary scholars, but historically, that was one perspective. People, there was a thought that the Beatitudes were almost like New Testament law, and that these are the things you have to do to be in good standing with God. So I want to I try to address that today, because I think most of us would feel like, well, that doesn't sound right. Because we know that we're saved by grace, right? That, that it's God's, that's God's unmerited favor. We can't earn that. But why does it sound like we're earning the blessing of God and earning a place in heaven? So we'll, we'll address that uh, a little bit later. Three phases to today's message. We're going to talk about being merciful. We're going to talk about being pure in heart. And then at the end, we'll talk about the nature of grace and kingdom dynamics and uh, the, the sort of idea or fallacy, really, of reward system. So, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Um, Again, mercy, being merciful, that's an important word in living out our Christian lives, right? Uh, We've said before, the Beatitudes are a description of what a follower of Jesus looks like. This is, a, this is a description of what it looks like when somebody's following after Christ. And so, uh, it would be important to understand what it means and what it looks like to be merciful. So, once again, this morning we will break for Greek. Um, the Greek word that's translated merciful is hard to say in English. I think it's eleemon, something like that. Uh, in terms of a definition... Uh, it's the, the short definition, according to the interlinear, is full of pity and merciful. That's helpful. Um, and then the full definition adds the word compassionate, uh, which I guess is a little more insightful. But then, in Strong's, if you go down a little further, dig down a little deeper, it has this, merciful is acting consistently with the revelation of God's covenant. And then we begin to really understand 
what it means to be a merciful person. Um, It really is to begin to empathize to the degree that we, we, we enter into another person's situation and we begin to see that situa- situation and respond to it uh, in light of God's covenant rather than in light of our own convenience or inconvenience. Uh, I want to give you a, a, an example by another use of that same word uh, in another text in, in Hebrews. And verse 17 is what I want to focus on, but for context, I'm going to read this whole passage. Since the children, and, and that's us, have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, again, us, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The mercy of Jesus was that he became like us. Jesus was merciful in that he, he forsook his place in heaven and became a human being. He came to earth to identify with you and I. He, he, he left that place of, of beauty and perfection and came into the world and walked around in all the criticism, all the sin, all the judgment, all the stuff of this world on our behalf. That's what he did. And that's, that's mercy. That's what mercy looks like. And if we want to be merciful people, then we need to allow ourselves to begin to enter into the situation, the condition, and the suffering of those around us and to begin to experience the world from their perspective, Uh, to actually come alongside them and suffer with them. It's a willingness to sacrifice, again, our convenience or or, our our resources uh, to enter into their world. According to Scripture, there's no restriction on this in terms of who we should be merciful to. We don't get to choose uh, to be merciful to some and not to others. We would be uh, asked to be or directed to be or guided to be merciful to anyone who is in need of mercy. Uh, It's an all-encompassing sort of situation. I want to make... Uh, one application here this morning, th- there's others, but I want to make one that I feel like is huge for us. I, I think that uh, this, could, this, could, this application of being merciful could make a huge impact and change the way uh, that could cha- it could transform our culture, our communities, uh, our churches, certainly, um, our society. So I'm not necessarily, we, we talk about entering into someone else's suffering and entering into their situation. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that everybody needs to sell all their earthly belongings and move to Calcutta and be Mother Teresa. Now, that, that is one application. But, but, but another application that might be a little closer to home is, is in, the, in the area of forgiveness. Uh, people came to Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, asking for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Uh, have mercy on me. So any number of people came to Jesus and asked for mercy. Many of those were looking for healing, but many of those were looking for forgiveness. They were seeking forgiveness from Jesus, 
And, and I think if we want to be merciful, we need to begin to enter into other people's situations, into their sin. And by that, I don't mean do their sin and get involved in their sin, but begin to see their sin as God sees it and respond to it in light of his covenant agreement with his people in the way that he would, uh, not in the way that we might. We typically, uh, when we see those situations very often, uh, and, and again, we, ju- we, we just cast judgment on those situations. And by, by that, it's, we're not talking about... Um, justifying their sin, but really seeing it as God sees it and beginning to extend forgiveness. And I know that sounds really simple and easy, but how often do we do exactly the opposite of that? How often do we find ourselves, and I'll just, let's, everybody right now, just think of yourself. Don't think of other people. Think of you. How often do we say, oh, I hope they get what they deserve? How often do we cast those kinds of judgments on other people? Here's the thing. I hope I don't get what I deserve. I hope you don't get what you deserve. Um, I, I would rather hope that God would have mercy in a way that would release me from uh, the, the failures, the sins, the mistakes of my own life. I, um, I saw a news report this week, and I... I know some of you don't like to watch the news because it's all bad news all the time, but it's not. Sometimes there's little nuggets in there. And uh, this particular report was about a gentleman who was a, uh, uh, he's a veteran. He had been, he served in the U.S. military in Afghanistan, and he's now home, uh, living in a small town somewhere, and he was arrested. He was arrested for DUI, and it was his second infraction. And so the judge that uh, he went before took the time to look into his story a little bit, find out a little bit about this guy. And he found out that he was, uh, he was suffering from PTSD, as many war veterans are, that he, he had seen and been involved in things that probably nobody should ever be involved in. One of the things was this. He has a fear of closed-in spaces, kind of whatever you claustrophobia. And the reason he has that is he was in an armored vehicle with two other people in his group or whatever you call that. They were going across a bridge and uh, a bomb went off and blew up the bridge and their vehicle fell into the water and immediately submerged. So they were trapped in the vehicle and the result of that was that he now has this fear of being confined in closed spaces. And the reporter, it's after the fact of the story, but he's interviewing this guy. And he says to him, uh, how many people survived? How many got out of that vehicle? And the guy kind of looks off for a minute, and he doesn't answer. He's just quiet for a long time, and he goes, just me. Just me. And so the, uh, they interview the judge. And the judge says, you know, I, I, I really did understand his situation, but I also felt like if I just let him off, that this will happen again. I'm not doing him a favor by just saying uh, no sentence. So he sentenced him to a night in jail. He said, I'm going to send you to jail. You have to spend the night in jail. And a jail cell, of course, is a small, fairly confined space. And so the guy uh, went to serve his sentence, and he showed up at jail, went into the cell. And about a minute after he went into the cell, the door opened. And the judge walked in. 
And he sat down on the bench. And the guy looked at him and said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going to spend the night with you here. And they interviewed the judge after the fact. And he says, what would you do? The, the reporter, what did you do? And the judge said, well, we ate meatloaf. I'd like to tell you it was good, but... He goes, and then we played some cards, and he goes, we talked. We talked about a lot of things. They showed uh, a scene of the two of them after the fact, and this guy has got tears in his eyes, and he's hugging this judge. And I, it was off mic. The mic was removed a little bit, but you can hear me. He goes, I love you. And I just thought, now that is mercy. This judge just said, I'm going to go into his situation. I understand his situation enough that I'm going to enter into it and share in that with him. That's what God does to us. He enters into our lives and our situations. He doesn't say, here's how I want you to do this. No, he came down to earth, became a person, and walked around in our stuff. And look, if you were here last week, I, I quoted Jonathan Edwards from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, I repent. Uh, far be it from me to criticize one of the greatest preachers of all time, but I think it's at this point that maybe Edwards missed it a little bit. Yes, yes, he's right. God is a bazillion times more holy than we could ever hope to be. Yes, our destiny is 100% totally in God's hands, but I think what what Jonathan Edwards failed to acknowledge is that what, what God did about that is he sent Jesus to become a person and enter into our situation and take our sin upon him so that we wouldn't have to pay for it. Here's... Oh, man. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that's the mercy of God on our lives, is that he takes it upon himself. He enters into it to the point that he's completely engaged in what's happened in our lives. So let me, let me just carry this out for you. When we surrender to that, when we say yes and we receive the mercy of God, what happens is we become his children, right? We cry, Abba, Father. That's what it says, right? That's what happens. And then he infuses us with his character. He begins to pour his life and his character out upon our lives. We take on his likeness. So his merciful character becomes part of us. It's in us. We become merciful because we receive mercy. Does that make sense? We show mercy because we receive mercy. We, be, we become then a people who are willing to take the time, the energy, the care to do what was done to us. To do, if, you know, you, you, the, whole, the old question, if you were in that situation, what would you want somebody to do to you? Would you want insults? Would you want criticism? Get a job. What a loser. No, you would want somebody to enter in to your situation, understand it to the point that they would then help you with that situation. Mercy is entering into someone else's life and understanding God's covenant relationship with that person. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. There's a natural progression that happens as 
the nature and the character of God begins to fill our heart and fill our life, we become more like Him. Uh, understand this. Every judgmental thought we have begins with the presupposition that I'm better than you. Uh, we, we live, I want, I want you to know this, <laughs> we live in a culture that is steeped in judgment. We really do. Our culture is steeped in judgment. It's our default mode. Everybody, I'm going to just, everybody thinks they're better than everybody else all the time. Don't we do that? Don't we, we just, we, we, we assume we're better than everybody else and so we cast judgment on them and most of the time, let's be honest, we're not even aware of it, it's just what comes out. It's just, it's just what comes out of us. Jesus had uh, something to say about that. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. And again, if you know the context, uh, Pharisee is a a religious person who is pious and righteous in their own heart. A tax collector would be looked down upon as kind of a bad guy. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. The tax collector stood at a distance and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. It requires a real sense of humility to be able to do that. It really does. See, our one job when we see another person is to agree with God uh, that person was worth Jesus dying for. Whatever their condition, whatever their situation, whatever their sin, that person was worth Jesus dying for. That's my job, is to agree with God that person was worth Jesus dying for. To not cast judgments to why are they like that? Why, do they do, why can't they get a job? Why can't they be responsible? Why can't they take care of themselves? Why can't they do the... No, that person was worth Jesus dying for. That's what Paul did. He said to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Nothing else. I, you know, here's the thing. When we begin to do that, I'll tell you what happens. You begin to see things you never saw before. You'll begin to see Jesus in places and in people that you never imagined you would see Jesus before. I I absolutely guarantee it will open your eyes, it will lighten the eyes of your heart in such a way that you will begin to see Jesus in places and in people that you never thought you would see them before. Uh, It's, you know, and let's be honest, it's really easy to do that or easier when it's your friend, somebody you like. I have a lot of mercy on my friends. Uh, Not so much my enemies. It's a lot harder. It's, it's harder when it's somebody you don't like. Jesus did have some things to say about that as well. He gave us two things. I don't know what to even call these, little Jesus helpers. Just, just two little things I think Jesus did that will help us in that process, okay, of being more merciful and, and seeing those people that may be our enemies that we don't like in a different way. So the first one is this, and, and you're familiar with it, but I want to give you a, a little more Maybe something you haven't thought of before. Do not judge or you too will be judged. 
For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged with the measure you use. It will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know what that is? That is a... That, 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 that is a whole different way of looking at the world. This, my friends, is the classic paradigm shift. Okay? That is a different mindset. It's a different way of thinking about the world. Instead of judgment, why are they like that? Why do they do that? Why don't they get there together? Uh, this, is, this is a different perspective on life. It's, it's, it's being willing to understand that Whatever the situation is in that person's life, I have a two-by-four in my own eye, and my life is probably a bigger mess than they are, than theirs is. It's a radically different perspective. It's a totally different paradigm on, on life. That is, in my mind, a kingdom perspective. That's the unique kingdom perspective. That's what it means to walk in the kingdom of God, is to understand and see life that way rather than the way that we normally see it which is judgment in our culture today. Second thing Jesus gave us is a little simpler. He just said, pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. You know, here's the deal. I'll tell you something. It's hard to hate somebody when you pray for them. It really is. I, I, I guarantee you, I promise you today, I'm, I just guarantee you everything today. Uh, you pray for somebody, your heart will change. It, it, is, it is, I think, almost impossible to hate somebody when you pray for them. You begin to pray for them and your heart will begin to change and you'll begin to see that person the way that Jesus sees them and I guarantee it will change you. Look, nobody said, there's bad people out there. There's bad people who do bad things out there. Everyone hates them. The unique kingdom thing to do is to pray for that person. That, that's, that's a kingdom mindset, a kingdom perspective. I, I'll... I'll, my sin is worse than their sin, so I pray God bless that person. God help them. God cause your, your conviction, your spirit, your heart, your grace to rest on their life. And when you do that, it begins to release you from that place of judgment, and you become more merciful and allow mercy to work in your own lives. It's God's job to judge, not ours. We should leave that up to Him. All right. My goodness, what happened today? This is great. Uh, let's talk about being pure in heart for a minute. Just a minute. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, Kierkegaard says purity of heart is to will one thing. I, man, I, would, I wish I was that smart. I'd love to be able to figure stuff like that out. Purity of heart is to will... One thing. That, I believe, captures precisely what Jesus is saying here. Purity of heart is a heart, having a heart that's free of duplicity. It's a heart focused on only one thing. It's, it's a heart that doesn't have what our friend James would call double-mindedness. It's a single focus on God outside of everything else. In a fallen world, and we live in a fallen world, our tendency, most of us, most of the time, will have impure hearts. 
And by that, I don't mean we're evil and bad. I mean our hearts are not focused on one thing. They're, they're duplicitous. They're, they're, there's multiple things going on at once. Let me give you an example. It's a beautiful spring day in Portland and you're driving down the road and you got some worship music playing and you're just praising Jesus and somebody cuts you off and you say, you stupid, what just happened? It's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an impure heart. It's a heart that has praise for God and this in it all at the same time. Um, purity of heart is bringing everything under the kingdom rule and reign of God. Our relationships, our jobs, our, our, our finances, our marriages, our kids, uh, even our driving. Have mercy on me, a sinner. <laughs> but, but that's purity of heart. That purity of heart is to will one thing. It's a single focus in our lives. And, and when, we bring, when we begin that process of bringing everything in our lives under the rule and reign of God, what happens? We will see God. We will see God. That, that's, the, that's the ultimate, isn't it? We will see God. Isn't that the pinnacle? Isn't that as good as it gets? We will see God. Look, here, eternity will be defined by gazing into the eyes of Jesus. I, I, I've had people say, you know, heaven, will that be boring? I mean, worshiping all the time, floating around a cloud all day. I'm like, you'll see God. You'll see God. Uh, I don't think that's boring. Eternity will be defined by gazing into the eyes of Jesus. I don't think we'll get tired of that. 20 million years of that. Okay, so last thing this morning. I told you I would talk about this uh, idea of reward. And I think sometimes there's this mindset. Again, we, we, because our culture is so steeped in judgment, because our culture is steeped in a reward system, that's how we tend to view things. If we're merciful, we get mercy. If we're pure of heart, we'll get to see God. If we eat our vegetables, we get ice cream, right? That's how it works. We, our whole, we live in a legal system that's based on rewards. And so we tend to interpret Scripture that same way. That's that's how we think of it because of our cultural influence. But I want to tell you, I, I believe a kingdom paradigm is very different than that. I think a kingdom paradigm is this, that, see, for, well, first of all, let's just, mercy, by definition, cannot be earned, right? Mer- mer- that's the whole point. Mer- mer- mercy is getting what you don't deserve. So you therefore cannot earn mercy. You can't, it's not a, you, can't, you can't gain it, you can't buy it, you can't earn it, you can't achieve it. So the idea that somehow this is a reward system is immediately out the window because you can't earn mercy. There, you can't, there's nothing you can do to get it. That's the nature of it is you get what you don't deserve. And that's the whole context of Scripture, right? Mercy, grace, salvation. These are things that are unearned. It's God's unmerited favor that He bestows upon us even when we don't deserve them. So, <clears throat> why does it sound like it says something other than that? Why does it sound like my behavior will get me into a, a better place? Uh, that I'll be rewarded for what I do. Let me try to explain this. First John 3. Dear friends, 
Now we are children of God. When are we children of God? Now, already. We're already children of God. But what we will be has not yet been made known. So we're already children of God. We're already in, but we're not complete. We're still in process with Him. We know that when Christ appears, what will happen? We will be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. When Christ appears, we will be like Him. For we shall see Him. How do we see now? Through a glass darkly, right? We don't see, we see Jesus, but do we see him fully? No. But then we will, and we will be like him. All who have this hope for, in him purify themselves as he is pure. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. We see Jesus as he is, and that in itself is transformational, and we become more like him because we see him. This is a a philosophical uh, principle that was first, I believe, uh, communicated by Plato. Knowledge presupposes likeness. You know something, you become like it. My, uh, My dog buddy knows me. He's been with us for almost 13 years now. And buddy... uh, he, he gets up when I get up. He goes to bed when I go to bed. He knows what I'm going to feed him. He knows me. He, he knows my voice, uh, and he knows I can do my very best to keep the same you know, inflection in my voice. And if I say, come here, buddy, he knows if I'm calling him to go for a walk or to take a bath because he loves his walk and he hates his bath. And if I say the exact same thing the exact same way, he knows that's a walk, I'll come. If he thinks that's a bath, he goes and hides. So he, he knows me, and over the years, he's become more and more like me. Now, he doesn't know me fully, right? There's things about my life he doesn't know, but to the degree that a dog can know you, he knows me, and he has become like me. So here's my point in all of that, is that <laughs> you do what you got. You, got, you use what you got. Uh, seeing God is not a reward. It's a natural consequence of a pure heart. Does that make sense? It's a natural consequence of a pure heart. Um, Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a little fun this morning. Have you ever heard the phrase, somebody puts the cookies on the bottom shelf? Anybody heard that? Nobody ever heard that? Wally's heard it. Come on. When they, sometimes somebody's teaching or preaching, and they'll, they'll say, you'll say, that guy puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. And what they mean is, he describes this in a way that everybody can understand. This person makes it so that anybody can understand. So that's my goal. What, what I hope to do in the next eight minutes is to put these Oreos down. You have cookies. What did... God, this is, what has happened? My goal is to put these Oreos down so far that any five-year-old could understand them, okay? And that is not a reflection on the intelligence of anyone in this room in any way. Please do not take that to be condescending. But my plan right now is to give you a little kingdom theology for kindergartners, okay? Cookies on the bottom shelf. All right, let's begin. So... Eat your vegetables and you'll get ice cream, right? Do we operate that way? Absolutely. If you do this, you get this, right? If you eat your vegetables, you get ice cream. Um, Wrong. That is a reward system. Now, that may be good parenting, and I will make no judgment on that whatsoever, 
But it's bad theology. It's bad theology. Uh, instead of eat your vegetables and you get ice cream, here's kingdom theology. Eat your vegetables and you'll get big and strong. Oh. So what is the natural consequence of eating your vegetables? Popeye. If you eat your vegetables, you grow big and strong. That's not a reward. That's the natural consequence. That's the progression. If you eat your vegetables, you grow big and strong. That really is the principle of sowing and reaping. That, that's... Um, yeah, okay, let me... That's the natural consequence. Let's go one more. Blessed are the merciful... They will receive mercy. The natural consequence of being merciful is you, you'll get mercy. That's sowing and reaping. When the, the principle of sowing and reaping is all throughout the whole scripture. It's not a reward. If you plant a seed in the ground, it's, it's a farming analogy. Something grows. That's not a reward. It's the natural consequence. When you plant a seed, it grows. That's what happens. It's a progression that, that continues. And so the natural consequences of being merciful, of being pure in heart, are that you'll reap mercy, that you'll have to see God. Does that make sense? It's not a reward, it's a natural consequence, right? We got that? Everybody got that? Thank you. Ah, uh, but the best is yet to come. But wait, you still get ice cream. <laughs> I, oh, wait, I go back. I do? Why? Because I'm at Papa's, and Papa says I get ice cream. God wants to give his kids good gifts, okay? So there's no reward. Look, when, the, when those boys are coming over to my house, they know they're going to get ice cream. They are not thinking for one moment, if we eat our vegetables, we'll get ice cream. Now, at home, they might think that. Don't tell their mom. But at Papa's house, they get ice cream. They're, they're, they're absolutely certain they're going to get ice cream. In fact, Aaron told me one night they're driving over, and she says to Caspian, Caspian, do you think Papa has ice cream? Caspian says, if he doesn't, he'll go get some. <laughs> I mean, true. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children or grandchildren... How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. So here's the thing. God wants to bless us. God wants to just give us gifts. He wants us to eat ice cream. It's not a reward. He's just given it to us because he loves us. He wants to give it to us. We can't earn those things. We can't buy that stuff. We can't achieve that stuff. God just says, no, I love you. You're my kid. Eat ice cream. Eat ice cream first. I mean, he probably wants us to eat our vegetables, but the point is this, that it's not a reward. Mercy is the result of softening our heart, becoming more like God, seeing him, entering into his presence. The more we understand that, the more we receive that, the more we, we extend that to others. It's just a natural progression of how this works. The, let me say this, though. The opposite of that is also true. If we allow ourselves... To, to not be softened in our heart by God, and we continue, continue down that road of judgment, and, and we judge other people, or, or, you know, we'll be judged. That'll be the natural consequence. It's the same thing. The, the idea of a reward system, I think, just lacks an understanding of how the kingdom of God really works. If, if you live, if you live a loveless, 
merciless existence, you end up far, far away from God. You can't have both. Okay? And let me tell you, that's all about what road you're on. Which direction are you going? Are you going towards God or away from Him? Here's the result of going down that road. Let me tell you what will happen. I guarantee you again, two things will happen to you if you walk away from God, you live a loveless, merciless existence. Uh, or you live under a reward system. If you, if, you, if you live under the world's legal system, you try to earn and gain favor with God. Two things will happen. One is you'll never be good enough, and two is everybody else will be worse than you. That, that, that's not fun. That's not fun. But by, here's, here's my thing. Um, this is why the Bible is not focused on the end of things. Now, look, I know that's in there, right? It's in there. We know what happens at the end. We win, right? You know that. That's there. It's good because it gives us hope. It gives us an understanding. It gives us a perspective. But how much of the Bible really is about that? 99% of the Bible is about what's happening here and now today in this life. I had, man, people... I had somebody text me the night and want to know, is the rapture real or is that just, you know, talking about God coming? And my response, I, I actually gave a very, uh, a very good, kind theological response. What I wanted to say was, who cares? Um, I have no control over that. I have absolutely no control over that. I, I, people that spend their whole life trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. Let me tell you this. We have no control over that. What do we have control over? How we live right here now today. What we do with the time we have. If you've got one day or a hundred years, how you use that time is what matters. Not what happens after that. I, 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 you, it'll be good, okay? It's going to be good. Let's just hold on to that one. What happens? It's all about the road you're on. Which direction are you going? Are you going to fill your life with judgment and criticism and reap judgment and criticism? Or are you going to fill your life with mercy and grace and get to see God? That's what it's about. So I will go back and we'll close with this. Uh, back again to 1 John chapter 3 and John's promise. We shall see him as he is. What a deal. Hold on to that. Let's stand.